1: plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie.
2: Wednesday morning the 28th of November Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM Peter Smith's independent report on the National Broadband Plan has highlighted the contact former Minister Dennis Nocton had with the man who heads up the consortium that has become the final bidder for this project which will deliver broadband to 500,000 homes 18 formal meetings, 9 telephone calls, calls and five dinners. Mr. Nocton was obviously very much in contact with David McCourt but the Smith report concludes that the Minister did not influence or seek to influence the conduct of the tender process in favour of Granahan McCourt Capital. While the audit had to rely on statements from Nocton and McCourt without ever speaking to them, Peter Smith says he is satisfied that neither of them had the opportunity to influence the process. Joining us this morning to discuss this is timmy dooley who's finna fall's spokesperson on communications good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us uh, do you accept the findings of this report and, to, and that it's time to move on now
1: well i think this report raises more questions than it does uh, provide answers uh it may be the case that there's no evidence to suggest uh, that the process has been tainted by these meetings but in the report um Mr. Smith makes it clear that there was at least three meetings of which there were no minutes of, and the only two participants at those meetings was Mr. McCourt and Minister Nocton. And what he says is he's relying on their statements in relation to those meetings to the fact that the National Broadband Plan was not discussed. Well, I'd like to see those statements, quite frankly. Uh, I'd like to understand what they were discussing, why they needed to do it in private, so it, it raises very serious questions. Now, there's there's a more fundamental question, and it's this. There are rules that have been drawn down and signed up to by both the minister and by Mr. McCourt around the communication that can take place between a bidder, minister, and department department officials. Now, those rules have been clearly broken. Now, whether or not you can go on to say and prove mm. that by breaking those rules there was necessarily um, a, some aspersions cast on, on, on the process of, of, the, of the tender process or some tainting of the tender process. And clearly he doesn't have the evidence to support that. But he has evidence that the rules were broken. And in those rules, it sets out the remedies. And it says that where, you know, where, where, where and it identifies certain things that would be breaking the rules, canvassing, and clearly two private meetings, three private meetings, and a plethora of other meetings where the National broadband Plan was discussed, was not appropriate, and therefore uh, is, is uh, has the capacity to immediately disqualify the bidder. Was now, the I
2: mean, Minister's resignation not the remedy? No, you see,
1: this is what's kind of lost on this, because everybody gets tied up in the politics of it. But the same responsibility resides with the bidder. Well, if not are
2: getting a- caught up in the politics, uh, I mean, it's uh, the independent audit. The assessment is uh, that the decision to resign insulated the process from any apparent bias. But well, he
1: looks, yes, he, he talks about the process. He doesn't believe that the process has been tainted or impacted. But the bidder broke the rules. The bidder was involved in canvassing, the bidder uh, arranged and sought meetings that were in clear breach of the guidelines that he had signed up to. Now, the the Smith report is silent Mm. on that. But the 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 Smith report, quite frankly, addresses just one issue, uh, and and that is whether or not the process was tainted. Um, and, and, And basically what it finds is that he cannot find any evidence, and he identifies three meetings that took place that he has relied on the word Of the two main protagonists here, the two main players, he's relied on their word uh, and, and, and has accepted their statements to say, we didn't discuss the broadband plan, so therefore it allows him to make the assertion that, in his opinion, the process has not been tainted. But if you go back a step and look to the fact, which is, why do you have rules in the first place? You put rules down to ensure that people... Don't have these inappropriate contacts. Now he muddies the waters a little bit by saying it would be it would be difficult to enforce that because people meet at all sorts of events. Mm. These weren't all sorts of events. These were private dinners. These were where the two people concerned spent um, you know multiple hours together. Like it is. It is, it is believing in, in fairy tales. In and, and
2: at one of the meetings in June, uh, it's understood Dennis Nocton was telling the bidder that they were looking to, for too much money from the state, this figure of three billion euro the whole point. But That's do you think that people without broadband this morning are concerned about the process or whether it was tainted or not or if we get on with this uh, and start rolling it out in 2019 as people will read this morning will be the case if this is accepted.
1: Well they should Michael because here's the, pr- here's the point why was the bidder uh, canvassing the minister? Why was the bidder spending uh, his, his efforts to meet the minister rather than going through the normal uh, communication process by communicating with the officials what was it that he saw short in his bid that required him to seek the minister's uh, intervention or involvement the problem i have had michael and you and i have mm. spoken about this before mm. the problem i have had for about a year and a half now is that when the esb when vodafone and when aircom now known as air pulled out of the bid process because, quite frankly, they didn't see a business opportunity. I was really concerned because I said, whatever consortium ends up winning this, they may not understand the extent to which this, the size and scale of this project, they may not understand the financials. They may be prepared to sign up to something that, that, that ultimately won't happen because they won't have, have thought it out or planned it out. And my concerns still reside in that, in that, in that area. Now, let, let's also look. The Granahan-McCourt bid, that was first submitted, that went through pre-qualification, was made up of SSE, a very big company on on, on the scale of the ESB. Mm. John Lang, major international construction company with phenomenal experience uh, and and, and very significant uh, access to funding. They pulled out. ENET, which was the main company that was leading the bid for Grenahan McCourt in the first instance, it pulled out. Mm. So now all we're left with going into the final decision of the government is a private investment fund based in Boston, with a list of subcontractors in Ireland, who could do the work.
2: Do you believe now, that's a new bid?
1: I believe that it is. It is a completely different, mm. a different prospect. The to what rejected was there at the well, but
2: rejected that suggestion yesterday.
1: But surely he did. He, mm. I mean, in, in in an amazing contribution, he said that a change is not a change. A change in the bid is not necessarily a change.
2: Mm. And, um, and he used to have it assessed, isn't he?
1: Yeah, well, it, that that is being assessed, but there's. You see, the concern I have is that the government now are trying to hoodwink the people yet again. They've been waving this flag, this contract, this project since 2012. Now, now they've got to make a decision, and it's my it, it's my opinion that they're attempting to get a contract signed at at any cost, so that they can face the Irish people and say all is well. We've a contract signed whether that contract will ever be able to be delivered, whether the company mm. they're about to give it to has the capacity to deliver. And it's on behalf of the people who I represent and are spread right throughout the country, those 540,000 premises, whom I don't want to see hoodwinked. I want to know that the company that wins it has the capacity, the capability, and the financial strength to make it happen. Okay. I'll, I'll be honest with you, what I see, what I see left in, 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 the, in the tender process, I don't have the confidence in what's left because all the main players have pulled out and the final consortium that was that, that this final bidder was part of has effectively disintegrated. And it's many... time for the government to call a halt to this farcical situation and treat the people with respect rather than trying to hoodwink them into another uh, another cat and mouse chase for another five or six years pretending broadband is coming and ultimately it won't
2: the minister who resigned last month met 18 times with mr mccourt uh, but he had 40 meetings with uh, various representatives from the various consortiums
1: yeah it's 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 detailed he had 40 meetings in total 18 of which were with Grenada and McCourt. So almost half the meetings were with, one, were, were with one bidder. He had nine direct phone calls with them and five mm. dinners. But does
2: that the, not show his uh, approach to this? No, no,
1: but the other meetings...
2: Rightly or no, wrongly?
1: No, no. Some of these meetings are in the normal course of being at conferences, at events, bumping into. So for completeness, they're mm. all in there. The facts remain, though. There are, uh, as I said, five dinners. And there doesn't seem to have been dinner with any of the others. Um, at least two of these dinners were private, where only Mr. McCourt and the minister were present. Now, to to the best of my knowledge, no other chief executive of any of the other uh, companies would have sought to have dinner with the minister, would have even entered into an arrangement like that, because they knew it would have been against the rules. Mm. And quite frankly, the rules have been broken. And unfortunately, Peter Smith... Who, who drafted this report has given no credibility to that.
2: Okay, and you could argue that there's no chance to negotiate a price when you're negotiating with just one potential bidder, and that that price might be up to 3 billion, gone from 500 million up to 3 billion. And as you say, there's a question over the ability to deliver this but, to the 500,000 homes.
1: But Michael, we had a, we, we, we had a Moriarty tribunal mm. that all revolved around a conversation in a pub between a minister and a businessman that lasted no more than, a, we understand, mm. about two minutes. And there were others in the pub. And there's, it's denied by all sides what was or wasn't discussed, but it was it was the subject of the Moriarty Tribunal that went on for a number of years, made major findings against both individuals, now which has been contested and, and they're entitled uh, to, 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 their, to their good names in relation to that. Here, I mean, we have... We have five dinners, nine phone oh. calls. And and, and, and nobody is, is, is saying that there's the potential for anything, any amount of information to be transferred, even in relation to the Moriarty Tribunal. Okay. The central and charge th- was, th- was th- a relatively minor... And, and this um, is the
2: case that you're making, though. You're making the case uh, that we're facing into... Uh, open cheque sort of thing, uh, that that money may not actually deliver what is expected. Uh, And on top of all of that, by the time it's delivered, uh, there are some people who would say that the technology will be obsolete and that there's other ways of doing this and that it's not necessary. But the government says it's going ahead with it uh, and it'll move to the next phase. So what next as far as Fianna is concerned?
1: Well, I'm to meet with Peter Smith uh, in the next number of days, I intend to have uh, the Communications Committee invite Mr. Smith before the committee so that we can thrash out and understand uh, how he has reached the conclusions that he has without all of the information. We try and understand that. And then my party, who are in uh, discussions, as you know, with Fine Gael about the confidence in the supply arrangement, uh, will be having a discussion around our concerns for the capacity... Uh, of this plan to deliver for the 540,000 homes, and, and we will be raising very serious questions to see and understand if the government are committed to spending the money that's necessary. We don't know what that bill finally will be, but if it is the case uh, that the deal on the table is still the same as was there previously, that effectively frightened off the ESB, Vodafone and Air, well then we won't find that as being acceptable. Uh, in terms of rolling out broadband to the 540,000 homes.
2: Meaning that this could lead to, to you pulling out of the confidence i well. Well, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm not going to make a statement like that. I'm not going to use the airways to threaten uh, when we're in negotiations with with, with Fine Gael. But, it, you know, my party has made it very clear in the discussions that have taken place to date that the delivery of broadband to 542,000 Homes and premises throughout Ireland is of paramount importance, and, and that's, we're not, and, and we're that's not your minimum
2: prepared. expectation, is well, it when, that that yeah, we, that everybody will be serviced?
1: Everybody will be serviced, but but that it cannot be done on a wing and a prayer, and and another elongated process that has no uh, timetable attached, that has no uh, appropriate outputs that we can measure the success or failure. Like this thing has been trundling on mm. since 2012,
2: and if it was to be delivered. Over the course of the next 24 months for €3 billion, euro, would that be acceptable?
1: Well, no. Hold on a second. €3 billion euro is an awful lot of money. And that was a leak that appeared in the Irish Times recently that's clearly spun by government. Nobody has ever suggested that the cost will spiral uh,
2: to €3 billion. Mm-hmm. And see it in like all of the newspapers this morning. Yeah, well, it's all, is it's it it's acceptable to you?
1: Up, well, I, I'd like to see where, where, where the costs come from. Um, if that's what it takes, well then we need to see a proper uh, assessment uh, of the costs. Like, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we willy-nilly just spend taxpayers' money in a reckless way, but there is one sure thing, that people in rural Ireland and in suburban areas that have poor quality broadband, it is impacting very negatively on those economies. It is having a huge drag on the potential development of those areas, and it's impacting on people's lives. Now, we have a situation along the East Coast at the moment In Dublin, and the commuter belt, where the cost of houses have spiralled out of control. People can't get homes. They can't get homes to rent or to buy. And the reality is that there are vacant premises in more rural parts of the country. And the main reason why people have chosen not to live there and are trundling towards the larger cities is because the services are not there. Now, the most important service at the moment that is vacant in a lot of areas is broadband. Uh, I have seen some economic reports that have been done in other countries that have shown how uh, more, I I won't say isolated areas, but certainly more suburban uh, and rural areas have seen a significant growth in their economic development um, uh, as soon as higher speed broadbands are rolled out because it allows companies, smaller companies to develop and employ in the region. And at the moment, that's... You know, So, so we, we can't look at this just as, oh, that's 3 billion or mm. 2 billion or 1 billion mm. of mm. taxpayers' money and we shouldn't be spending it. It actually impacts on the lives of all taxpayers, even those that have high-speed broadband here uh, along the East Coast at the moment.
2: All right, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on communications, Timmy Dooley TT.
3: Michael Reed
2: on LMFM. Tens of thousands of children are waiting for healthcare treatments and mental health, disability and speech and language assessment services, according to Barnardo's, which has compiled its winter waiting list report. We're joined by June Tinsley, who's Head of Advocacy with Barnardo's. Good morning to you, June, and thanks for joining us. Tens of thousands, in fact, 37,473 children, you estimate uh, this is an estimate that is based on responses to parliamentary questions. I understand,
0: yes, Michael, that's it. um And as you say, it's over 37,000 children right across the country who are waiting for either mental health services, speech and language assessments and therapies, or disability assessments. So it doesn't include any other children on, on other waiting lists um, for either surgical treatments or otherwise. And I suppose. For us, we chose those areas because they are the areas that um, crop up most frequently with the children that Bernardo's worked with across the country. Um, and it's certainly very clear that there are strong regional variations, clearly showing mm. that where you live affects how much, um, how quickly you'll get access to timely interventions.
2: It's a geographical lottery.
0: Essentially it is, yes. I mean, again, Cork and Kerry fare the worst when it comes to waiting lists for um, mental health services with over 30% of children in that area waiting longer than a year. Um, in the Live the area, about 10% of children are, are waiting for um, over a year for speech and language services.
2: And, and that's probably the most important part of it all, is it not? In that uh, it's one thing having... 37,000, 38,000 children waiting uh, on healthcare services, but it's more important the length of time that they are waiting, and in a a lot of these cases, they're waiting up to a year and more.
4: Correct,
0: yes, and as you can appreciate, um, a child's window of development is so short that any time that a child has to wait for either an assessment or therapy can have such a long-term repercussions on the child's development. It can affect their self-esteem, their ability to interact, to build friendships, Settling to school um, can damage the kind of parent-child relationships. Um, And as I said, um, what we found was the waiting lists are are very long for mental health services and in speech and language assessments. Um, And actually, just to to crack myself in in the area of loud, Mm -hmm. it was actually um, by 10% of children are are waiting for um, CAM services for longer than a year.
2: Right, uh, that's uh, the Child and Adolescent Mental, mental health, health Service. Service. OK, uh, but uh, the uh, problem, uh, bad knowledge as it is, I- is it more of the same as such, uh, or is it worse than it would have been the case last year?
4: Um, it's pretty
0: much more the same in terms of the regional areas. However, there are some differences. Um, for instance, we know in the mental health services that in, in the last six months, there has been a significant scaling back of the CAM service in the Wexford area due to um, numbers of staff um, leaving their service. So it's an absolute skeleton service now in um, the Wexford area, which then begs questions that there is going to be a very high threshold that children have to meet in order to obtain a service. And it can obviously affect a a child's um, ability to... To thrive, mm. if they have to um, present with such high need in in order to get a service, um, and in the area of speech and language, interestingly, um, about fifty percent of children are are, are waiting longer, um, in comparison to but with the study that we did this. In March of this year.
2: And are parents taking it on themselves? Because quite often especially with something like speech and language time is of the essence and the sooner you're assessed, the sooner you're treated and the sooner uh, you'll uh, improve and the improvement will be greater. Are parents taking it on themselves and paying for this privately?
0: Um, in many cases where they can do so that is being done. Um, and I suppose while Bernardo's can't diagnose conditions, we certainly can, can help parents in this situation um, by offering Tools to to help them engage and communicate with their child better um, and also to kind of help them understand the the condition that a child may have um, and also to kind of support and upskill them on how to manage uh, the child's behaviour. And also for for the child, we obviously work with the child to try and help them understand um, their emotions. But I suppose the reality of having such a lengthy waiting list is that Ireland has such a two-tier health system where those families who can afford to purchase private assessments and therapies can actually ensure their child continues to thrive, whereas children from low-income families don't have that luxury. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. those children are, are left behind, and the cumulative impact of delays seriously affects their ability to thrive.
2: Does it need to be like this, June, or what can be done to change this situation?
0: Um, well, we certainly believe it. it doesn't need to be like this. I mean, every child has, has a right to adequate health care, Um, And the the crucial thing is that we do need um, improved primary care teams right across the the country so that children can get access in such a timely manner. But I also think we need to kind of think outside the box as well in terms of investing in holistic uh, community-based services, which can be a resource to parents and to children who are waiting for more clinical and medical interventions because those kind of community-based services be they be offered through Bernardo's or through other avenues, actually can af- offer a lifeline to many parents and for the child can ensure that the condition doesn't deteriorate significantly while they're waiting for more medical interventions.
2: Okay, Joan, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. June Tinsley is Head of Advocacy with Barnardo's Ireland. Now, Wednesday morning means uh, the local newspapers are in shops. Marie Kearns has them in front of her this morning and uh, she's in studio with me now to tell us what's on the front pages. Let's start uh, this morning uh, or this week, With uh, the Drawd Independence.
5: Yes, Michael, and the story this week on the front page, the headline is Shut Guns and Drugs Route, and it's really a call. To close a controversial gap in a ditch between two northside estates, which it is claimed is being used as a direct route for gunmen and drug dealers to avoid guardy, according to the paper, the location between Monymore and Castle Manor estates was the scene of intense drama recently, as locals reported seeing hooded men in the area. Local councillor Tommy Byrne has vowed to get the gap. To closed telling the paper the big fear here is that a child will encounter these people at this gap it's about the safety of local people in both estates and it must be closed as soon as possible
2: okay uh, the leader a very different story
5: it is indeed. This is a funding blow for Drogheda. Not another one, Michael. And it's 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 really centering around uh, Loud County Council's request for funding for the Port Access Northern Cross Route, which the paper says has been rejected by the government. According to the story, the anticipated funding was denied to the council in the government's latest round of regional funding. Louth was widely expected to secure funding for Drogheda under the Urban Regeneration and Development Fund but was rejected outright, leaving Droughton, the only major town not to secure Category A funding in 2018. It quotes Frank Pentney, a director of services in Loud County Council, saying, we are disappointed and we intend to return to the department to seek feedback as to why we were not funded. We were ready to commence building.
2: Church of Scientology plans make for the lead story on the front yes. of the Mead Chronicle. That's
5: the story we covered ourselves Michael regarding the onboard panola ruling the plan permission was needed for change of use in relation to that controversial drugs detox centre in Beliver. And the front page of the Mead Chronicle today is focusing on the story and the reaction really from the Narcanon Trust the Church of Scientology linked organisation behind the centre and they're hitting out at the opposition to the facility a statement from the organisation says it's shocking to see that there are certain people who would object to drug and alcohol rehabilitation and that Narconon is trying to salvage people from drugs and alcohol, adding that anyone who objects to this being done is clearly against saving people from the great scourge of drugs and alcohol. Meanwhile, obviously, those opposed to the facility have welcomed the decision saying it's brilliant for Beliver and was the best outcome they could have hoped for after fighting it tooth and nail for a year.
2: Back to Loud and uh, the three papers in Dundalk uh, the Argus the leader and uh, the Democrat all running with uh, the same lead
5: that's right and it is of course that shock departure of Stephen Kenny from Dundalk football club thanks for the memories is the headline of the Dundalk leader which reports that Dundalk supporters are mourning the loss of the club's most successful manager who of course has left to take charge of the Ireland on the 21 side the front page of the Dundalk Democrat is striking with a picture of Kenny looking back and just has a couple of words on the paper, but it really hits home. All he has achieved, thank you, it says, four league titles, two FAI Cups, two league cups, and that European run. The, and the Argus then, Kenny answers Ireland. Call is the front page headline and they quote the man himself who says it was a real wrench to leave Dundalk Football Club because we had unprecedented success there and the staff and players were amazing to work with They were a real special group of players and there was a tremendous bond between the football club and the whole town really and inside the papers there's pages and pages of coverage Michael that I'm sure all the fans would be only too delighted to read
2: so that's it okay <coughs> very good alright thanks uh, for that uh, Marie and uh, uh, if uh, you want to comment on those stories, or if there's something else you've been hearing, or for that matter, if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Marie and Maggie are taking calls, and our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight.
3: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
2: on LMFM. How many drinks can I have and still be okay to drive? It's one of uh, the most que- common questions staff at Drink Aware are asked. And uh, Sheena Horgan, Chief Executive of Drink Aware, is on the line. Good morning to you. Thanks, uh, Sheena, for joining us. I Good take morning. it that uh, because we're in the middle of uh, the Christmas party season, it's a question you're asked more often than would otherwise be the case.
4: Uh, Absolutely and I think particularly with regards to the new amendment that came into play on the 26th of October we've noticed a lot of kind of confusion so we've now issued a blog and a a small infographic that's up on the website drink at drinkware.ie which shows what those limits and what the penalties are just to allay any confusion and fears that are out there.
2: Well it's the penalty that changed the limits didn't.
4: Absolutely, and I think that was probably one of the the main misconceptions when the amendment came in. People were assuming that it was the other way around, but it is actually most certainly the penalties as opposed to the limits. So the penalty used to be for 50 to 80 milligrams of blood alcohol concentration. It used to be a 200 euro fine and three penalty points. Mm. Now it's actually three months disqualification from driving instead of the penalty points and a 200 euro fine.
2: Okay, let's uh, go back to the beginning. So what is all would that mean how many drinks can I have and still be okay to drive?
4: Do you know the short answer to that and the answer that we would always give is never drink and drive. It just keeps it very very simple. Um, it, it's very hard to to kind of gauge what 50 milligrams to 80 milligrams of blood alcohol concentration is is that one drink, is it two drinks we would certainly support the uh, the Garda Síochána and the Road Safety Authorities premise that any amount of alcohol impairs your ability to drive or puts you at risk or puts the people around you at risk more mm. to the point so we would certainly recommend never drink and drive and especially around christmas time and when as you say there's parties there's so many opportunities to you know to go out to party to visit friends to be on the road and just for safety's sakes i wouldn't take the risk
2: Uh, and with some people it's almost certain to say that one drink will mean you'll fail a breath test but if you have one or two or three or four or god knows how many drinks tonight what does it mean tomorrow
4: I know. it's Well, this is the thing. I mean, one of our, our other commonly asked question is how long does it take for alcohol to go through your system? And I mean, the, the simple answer to that is that one standard drink takes an hour and there's no amount of coffee or showering that will change the science behind that. Having said that, one standard drink is 100 mils of wine or half a pint of beer. And we have about 98 percent of the population who don't know what the current guidelines are and don't know what a standard drink is. So therefore, you know, my glass of wine could be 175, which is two drinks, two standard drinks. Yeah. So it automatically means I, I should be looking for two hours. So it's quite a complicated system, which is why, yeah. you know, we'd certainly err on the side of caution with regards to that. But we have to be very careful around driving the next day.
2: Well, I, I think most people's glass of wine would probably be the equivalent of uh, two drinks because they say there are seven uh, units in a bottle.
4: I know and that's Mm. because it comes down to the 100 mils and we've certainly, our researchers also found that there's an awful lot of drinking at home and especially at Christmas time there's entertaining in Mm. the home or in somebody else's home. So it's that large glass of wine being topped up it's very difficult to know how much and to gauge how much you're drinking so Mm. we would certainly have a a few tips around that and one of them is never to free pour so never to top up say your own drinks or somebody else's or to free pour your drinks so if you know what your, your figures are, if you know what 100ml or 150ml looks like then you know what you're actually consuming and it, it's about really planning ahead to be honest, it's, I know Christmas is all about planning mm. and I'm adding another thing to the list but you know it's planning ahead when you're going out thinking about what are you drinking are you going to drive? How are you going to get home? What are you doing the next day? And, and setting your own kind of guidelines around that.
2: And if you have four pints, let's say, that doesn't mean mm. you need four hours for it to come out of your system. You actually need eight hours.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Eight. And, and then bear in mind that we're all kind of physiologically quite different. Mm. So, you know, we would all, anybody listening, will will be well aware of that fact. But that's the science is one standard drink, one hour.
2: Uh, And that should apply to everybody, should it? Uh, That's uh, worst case scenario, uh, an hour sort of thing.
4: That's, well, I don't know if it's worst or best case scenario. It's literally just the science bit, if you like. The, the thing with alcohol and consumption is that it will vary from person to person. Mm. And I think that's why everybody will, when it comes to, say, the likes of drink driving, it's, we're, it's our willingness to take a risk and go, well, I've had one or two, yeah. but you know what? I feel OK. Mm. And we kind of make those judgment calls or maybe you got away. You had two drinks previously and drove and nothing happened. So, hey, it's OK. Previous kind of case study. I'll, I'll go again. So we need to be very careful around that and that, around our assessment of risk. But I mean, if you look at the figures around kind of a road safety, um, from the Road Safety Authority around drinking and driving, like we've an increase at 11% in drink driving arrests. And the timing of those varies throughout the day. So I suppose you'd expect it to be the 12 to 6 a. M. which is, you know, 22%. But there's a third of those arrests are happening between 4 and 8 p.m. Mm. And some are even the, the 12 to 4 p.m., which is the morning after piece. So it's right across the day. So we, we need to be very careful. We need to be thinking about what we're consuming and how much we're consuming.
2: Uh, and the consequence is severe, very severe. Uh, yeah. Some people might argue because uh, slightly over the limit, whether you were drinking last night or today, but slightly over the limit, a Mm. small amount of blood in your alcohol, no matter how sober you feel, uh, and you're automatically disqualified.
4: Yeah, it's that three month automatic disqualification. And and it's interesting that it's gone from three penalty points to an actual disqualification. I I think that's quite a it's quite a public um, a public penalty, if you like, because whatever about having points, nobody may know being disqualified from driving, you know, carries a certain badge as well. I think people know that, you know, you can't drive anymore for a period of time, so it's, it's very public facing. Uh, we'll see if that's more of a deterrent, we'll see if those figures go down, but certainly our message would be get to know the guidelines, understand what the amendments are, but especially around Christmas
2: time, never drink and drive. Okay, we we'll leave it there. Sheena, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Sheena Horgan is uh, Chief Executive Officer of DrinkAware.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on
2: LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Currans uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning once again to you, Marie.
5: Good morning, Michael, again. And to all our listeners, only in Ireland, says James from County Meath. And he says that only in Ireland could there be such a delay and all this nonsense over the broadband plan. Why are we always so behind when it comes to technology? Why can't we just get it right? James wants to know.
2: Mm. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think they say that we will eventually, even though we're six years into the process and uh, some would argue that by the time it's complete, the technology will be obsolete.
5: That's right. I heard you saying that. John phoned in and John says to elderly people like himself, broadband, Michael, is not a big concern. He says he'd be lucky enough to be able to plug in his computer, never mind be able to do much else. In mm. saying all that, he doesn't see the sense in relation to all the secrecy he, as he sees it over the bidding. And but he just wanted to, to make the point that it's not the big concern with everybody. Okay. Uh, Jim says that businesses in rural Ireland are suffering hugely because of poor broadband but there doesn't seem to be any sense of urgency. This is going on for years. Imagine Michael if this was happening in Dublin. Mm. Jim says,
2: (laughs) Yeah and I think to a large degree that's the point and that it probably does matter to everybody because uh, it's uh, not just uh, for socialising or social activities a very important business tool and uh, tool for living in the modern world Uh, generally speaking uh, I think it's a greed and a necessity in modern life in this day and age Uh, but uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing much more about that through the day and indeed coming weeks and possibly months if not longer. Uh, Let's turn our attention though to uh, the Dogs and the damage uh, that they're doing uh, in uh, the coolies. And uh, we're joined once again uh, by Matthew McGrehan, who's the IFA's Rural Development Chairman. Uh, Thanks for coming back to us, Matthew. People were listening to us yesterday that have heard you talk about some of uh, the problems uh, that uh, some locals have endured in recent weeks. Uh, a, A disaster, but in the last 24 hours, disaster on top of disaster.
6: Yes Michael, good morning and thanks for the opportunity to come on the radio again um, I didn't think i would be coming on so soon again Not so soon, Not so soon.
2: No, it's unbelievable really isn't it yeah. No
6: I was contacted by, uh, by Brendan Hyde there yesterday evening again, as we all know uh, from the radio yesterday Brendan had a, an attack on his sheep last week and he moved them to a different field in the hope that they'd be alright and he went down to check them yesterday and there was four of them in the shock that's a drain uh, and one of them drowned it and uh, Brandon had to go into his to his waist or above his waist to get the other one the other one out the other couple out and another one is dead there this morning. So since I was talking to you yesterday, Michael, there's two more sheep dead, uh, and but Brandon didn't see the dogs after the sheep, but it, it can only be a dog attack, you know, mm-hmm. and th- th- that would that would put the put the sheep in in into the into the shock uh, like that, you know. And I suppose mm-hmm. I just Brandon. Feels that he's under siege at, at the minute. You know, and I'd ask the people in the Remeskin farmers and non-farmers to rally round uh, the house and 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 give their support and be on the alert. And uh, as a community, there far dogs. Uh, stray dogs going, going about the village and you, you know we're not saying that from the village they could be from the outskirts of it or whatever you know but just to be be on the alert and, and and rally behind Brendan at this at this time you know
2: absolutely and he,
6: I, 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 he, he, Brendan hasn't slept he, he hasn't slept last night or even the night before last hardly you know and he, he just he, I know me sad from, hmm. from 15 years ago I had sheep Cheap, killed by dogs, and it can be very mentally draining. Now you know the whole, the whole ordeal. And I know that mm. the the dog warden in the county is is on the case and doing all that they're doing all they can there in the pound. You know uh, to help Brendan as well.
2: Yeah, I was going to say he must be heartbroken, but uh, it's obviously much more than that. He's distraught at the end of his tether at this stage, uh, and I understand uh, uh, he he's looking at his future and wondering if it's worth it at all.
6: Yeah, well, he, he is. Yeah, he is. He's a uh, one on should, should he grow out his sheep altogether or if this continues you know his whole flock could be wiped out you know so them's the sort of things that Brendan has to think about at this stage you know but uh, I, I, again I would encourage um, all the all the people in the Michigan to rally behind Brendan at this at this time farmers and non-farmers mm. and, and try to keep things under control you know yeah, and
2: in particular whoever it is who owns these dogs I think you were telling us yesterday that Brendan has spoken to somebody locally
6: yeah, 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 and, and you know, but I, I believe, I believe from all the people in the area, there is more than one dog, you know. Mm. Maybe different groups too at different stages, you know.
2: Okay, but uh, I, I imagine there's a number of people who are, are listening to us this morning wondering if it was their dog, knowing that it might have been.
6: Yeah, yeah. Well, if they've any, if they've any suspicion at all, like they should, the dog should be on the control at all times, you know, and it shouldn't be roaming a dog can do an awful lot of damage in in 10 or 15 minutes. You know, if you let him out for a run, uh, someone might say, I'll only let him out for five minutes, and five minutes can can go around and it can be 25 minutes before they come back in and mm. I don't of an over of damage done at that stage you know
2: Alright well we'll ask everybody in Dromiskin uh, to think of that and uh, to think uh, if they have any information uh, that uh, could help to bring this uh, to a- an end uh, that they could yeah. make known to the IFA Yeah, yeah. And,
6: and even in, in the whole county Michael you know it, it is a serious problem and no, no, no sheep farmer knows when, when it's going to when this is going to Uh, uh, rear its head, you know, that they want to get word that our that, that sheep has been attacked, you know right. said yes, that it's not a nine to five doubt mm. can operate at any yeah. time, you know
2: Yeah, and we didn't expect to be back talking about it oh. again so quickly. Matthew thank you though for coming Thanks. back to Thanks, us uh, with uh, terrible news for us uh, this morning uh, and indeed uh, for joining us, Matthew McGreehan, IFA Rural Development Chairman Now let's go back to some more of your thoughts and some of the comments that you have there, Marie
5: Yes, Michael, staying with the national broadband story, Michael tweeted us during your interview with Deputy uh, Timmy Dooley to say... Pull the plug, Timmy Dooley, and stop this circus. Enough playing politics and do what's right. Uh, another listener, Joanne, phoned in and says, You have to wonder why potential bidders walked away from the national broadband process. It seems that the procurement process was very complex and I wonder why this was, Joanne says, and we should learn from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy says that those who don't have broadband should consider themselves blessed because all the time is not spent on on the internet and okay,
2: their time well, with their families. A, a point in that, uh, <laughs> but they're certainly disadvantaged in terms of work and doing business. And uh, as I said earlier on, for many people and indeed for many industries, a necessity in this day. And
5: yes, Ron, mm-hmm. you're from to says that mo- most of us mm. in urban areas don't think twice about having broadband. Mm. It's part of our everyday lives. But I have friends who live in rural areas and it really is a huge issue for them not being able to do their work if they need to when they are at home. Mm-hmm. So that, I suppose, is is the other side of the coin. Uh, moving then to the drink-aware story, uh, Chris phoned in to say that he works weekends, which means that he often has a couple of drinks on a Friday or a Saturday night. Uh, he's always worried about driving the next day because it's so hard to know if you'll still be over the limit. Says he usually doesn't drink after 12 the night before, but still, it's always hard to know.
2: Yeah, well, it's not the time, you know. It's the amount of uh, drink that you've had and think of it in units uh, and learn about the units if that's the case. Uh, in other words, if you're a pint drinker, there's two units in every pint. Yes. So you need to count two hours for each pint pint that you have.
5: Yeah, so that's you, mm. you mentioned that eight hours. So that really is food for thought, mm. that one. Um, another listener says... Um, thinks that tougher penalties were needed in relation to drink driving and feels that it will stop people from maybe taking the chance to drink or drive if they face disqualification and says, should be the same, Michael, for talking, texting, on your mobile phone whilst driving. Okay. We need to penalties for that. All
2: right, well, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
5: Tom rang in and just in relation to the story um, on the front page of the Drawhada Leader regarding the funding for the Port Access route and says that he thought that this would have been a priority considering the shortage of housing generally and says that this would open up land for housing and cannot understand why the government wouldn't see this as a priority. Okay. Another listener, Maeve, was in church and says that uh, Drogheda is again being overlooked. Um, how uh, that the that the, the campaign for the Northern Cross Route, as far as she can remember, is going on for years and years. She remembers reading about, it, she says, continuously, and yet we still are at a point where no money is being provided. Mm,
2: yeah, it must be going on 12, 15 years It has stage, to be, Michael. It? I was trying
5: to remember mm-hmm. myself, mm-hmm. but it is going on. She is right a very long time. Mm. So we'll finish on that one.
2: All right, thanks for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number, 1850 715
3: 958. Michael, Michael Reed
2: on, on LMFM. FM. Now, you may have heard the appeal from the Road Safety Authority and the Angardashia Khanna in uh, order to stop people from from buying quads and uh, scramblers uh, for children uh, this Christmas as uh, presents. Uh, They say that they're not toys. Uh, But what are they? Uh, Because normally vehicles of this sort need to, to be taxed and insured and driven by a licensed driver. The problem here is... That that's on the public road. Uh, and this brings us to legislation, which was brought forward by Sinn Fein. Melda Munster is the party spokesperson on transport and she joins us now. And good morning to you. And uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you had proposed that uh, parks and uh, beaches and or greens rather in housing estates and so on uh, would be considered uh, to be public areas. And you'd broaden the definition of what public space was.
7: Yes, the bill had uh, proposed to extend the definition of public uh, space to include parks and green areas. And unfortunately, the bill was was voted down. Um, The minister, the government didn't support it and uh, Fianna Fáil didn't support it, so it was voted down. But the the problem is still there and still very real. And um, the RSA, as you had said, and the Gardaí have launched a public awareness campaign in the run-up to Christmas um, to alert parents um, of the dangers of it, you know. And year on year, every Christmas, we've seen the problem increase because more and more um, young children and teenagers were getting scrambler bikes and quad bikes for Christmas. And the huge antisocial behaviour aspect of that where youngsters, because, you know, um, they, they... tend to drive them on green areas and residential estates um it's a public safety issue and Well,
2: it it couldn't be more serious than it was for the four people who lost their lives. Uh, This is between 2014 and 2017. This is uh, one of the issues that the RSA is highlighting and how three of the four people who died uh, as a result of accidents on these vehicles were under the age of 18. Now, people may decide to heed the appeal from the RSA and the guards or not. Uh, and if they don't uh, well then they can give these things uh, to children of any age uh, and they can drive them it would seem legally on the green in the housing estate or in a park or whatever the case may be
7: Yes well uh, because the the bill was pot- uh, voted down and you know the, we, we weren't allowed to extend the definition of public space um, the problem that the reason we brought the bill in the first instance where um, gardy can't really intervene um, for the simple reason if they seize the vehicle they have to give it back to them with no fine or you know, mm. no sanction whatsoever uh, because the person can claim it as their, their own property you know, uh, and that was because the legislation didn't cover green areas or green spaces and residential so the problem is still there unfortunately because of that you know but in relation to what you said about the four um three of the four people mm-hmm. that were killed were under 18 people might remember i i'm almost sure it was in 2013 there was one teenager he was 19 was killed on christmas day um, he'd been involved in a, a scrambler mm. crash and then two years later again on the very same day a 16-year-old teenager was killed when his scrambler was involved in in a crash. And so that's the nature of the danger.
2: And they're the because fatalities. They're, they're the fatalities because yeah. sometimes some people feel... That the accidents, uh, uh, you know, that people survive are are worse than the accidents that people die in. uh, That the life changing circumstances are are worse than the life ending. Darndale Park, last July, yeah, when Mm.
7: the man had suffered catastrophic head injuries. Mm. You know, himself and his partner was just sunbathing. In the park and his partners, that their lives have changed forever. You know, so they, he,
2: he, he lost an eye, which was one thing, uh, but he's in a vegetative state.
7: That's right. Yeah, so imagine having to live with that. You know, and that—that's mm. that's the nature, the seriousness um, of it, and the danger that they pose. You know, and parents should really think twice, think long and hard, because as I said, they're not toys; they're dangerous motorised vehicles, and you mm. know, um, for for young children, and in some cases. My colleague Desi Ellis had said in Dublin, parts of Dublin, children as young as ten were driving um, scramblers and quads on bikes. Mm. You know, but uh, I,
2: I it's I've, not unusual then, to see children on them, and it's not mm. unusual for there to be accidents. And they're not freak accidents. There were 39 accidents in the last four years, uh, and 41% of them involved children under the age of 18.
7: That's right and look we have our problems with it too in Drogheda, Um I had said it to you before, mm. residents were absolutely plagued on the green in, uh, scramblers being and Scrambler's been driven in quads on the green in Ballsgrove and in Rapmullen as well, you know, so it's it's across the state really and the fear is and I, I, I'm i glad that the RSA and the Gardaí mm. have come out um, with this message to parents in advance of of Christmas because as I said each year it's, it, it grows, you know, and until the government do something, you know, to to um, to rectify it, it's it's going to continue. But the onus comes back on parents, and you know, to to think long and hard before allowing Santa mm. bring their child, or even uh, buying a present for a teenager, buying that, mm. a quad or a, a scrambler for a teenager for Christmas. You know that that they're just they're dangerous. They'll put their own lives at risk, and they'll put others. Lives at risk too. Like if you're on a, walking on a green area and all of a sudden a scrambler comes tearing across, you know it's it's just unacceptable. It's it's um, it's something that that still needs to be tackled. And I have to say I was really disappointed um, that the minister didn't support the bill. And okay, he said there was unintended consequences mm-hmm. for changing the definition of a public space, but we had argued that any of the concerns, either the attorney general had or the minister, could have been addressed at committee stage you know and they kind of reverted back to the interagency approach but the problem is that the guards if they 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 don't have the powers because it's not included on a public road So the squad or scrambler as I said they can't really confiscate them and
2: Minister Flanagan has written people will read this in the papers today he's written to the family of uh, that man Ilbak Aveton, I'm not sure if I can pronounce his name correctly uh, but uh, he's very seriously injured, lost and I as I say and more importantly in a vegetative state and the Minister uh, has uh, sympathised with the family for the position that they found themselves in and says that the government is looking uh, at identifying ways of combat this problem and he's asked the Attorney General to look at any legislative amendments uh, which could help to do that. But if uh, people think that the Minister is scaremongering or that Amanda Munster is scaremongering or that the RSA is scaremongering or that the Gardaí are scaremongering, perhaps uh, they should take a closer look at that story and the condition that that man found himself in. Or listen to the National Spinal Injuries Unit. Uh, A consultant uh, from the Matter Hospital has said, right risk spinal injury uh, you could end up paralysed which means that you're not able to walk or you won't be able to use your hands to feed yourself or you could lose your bowel or bladder control or that you won't be able to breathe without the aid of a, a machine uh, and the reason that he says that is that he's seen people come into him uh, in such a condition as a, a result of the use of these machines
7: Absolutely, it's just a motorised vehicle at the end of the day, you know so people are going to um Involved in a crash, risk, you know, serious, serious injury. So, you know, and life or death in many cases, you know. So um, it's important that that parents, as I said, think twice and think long and hard, you know. And I know hmm. children or teenagers can be very insistent and, you know, um, all of that. But at the end of the day, it's it's something that could well put their lives at risk or put the lives yeah. of others
2: at And risk. I I take it they don't wheel the bike up to the green, though, do they?
7: Well, some do, some do, some wheel mm. it over, but others just tear up the road and Break, straight onto the green,
2: breaking the law, though.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, I mean yes, there's no doubt course. about
2: that. That is breaking the law.
7: Yes, of course it is. When you're
2: off the public road, that's one yeah. thing. Uh, maybe the law should be changed, and that's the argument you've been making. The government yeah. has been saying there will be unintended consequences, and they're looking at ways of doing that. Uh, but when you're on the public road, you need to be licensed, and the vehicle needs uh, to be insured and taxed, and so on. And
7: right. wearing a helmet, all mm-hmm. of that. All yeah, of yeah. That, you yeah. need to comply mm-hmm. with normal road traffic legislation in relation to a vehicle on the road, you know, and that's where they know that they. they the guards are helpless to do anything when they're on a green space and that's where it becomes a nightmare then for residents. But above all, parents have to be aware of you know, giving whether their child gets a scrambler or a quad bike off Santa or whether they mm. buy them a present. They need to be aware of the risks involved and you know, I know my own children when they were younger, had they asked, I would have said straight away, you know no, they're, they're too dangerous and Santa knows they're too dangerous and I'm not taking responsibility for buying you something that, you know, we are not legally allowed to to drive on a green mm. area or that, you know. So parents need to be very cognizant of all of that.
2: And without helmets. And
7: for the safety of their children, exactly. Mm. It's a motorised vehicle. Mm. So hopefully, hopefully maybe um, between the RSA campaign and the Garda campaign that people will take heed and we'll see less of it come Christmas, please God.
2: Yeah, uh, and the idea of driving Something like a, a motorbike without a helmet uh, is beyond well, belief. Unthinkable, um, really, yes. Yeah,
7: unthinkable, yeah. given the injuries you can incur. You know, it's unthinkable, really. It would be very, very irresponsible.
2: Mm. OK, well, as we said, uh, we've already seen some fatalities. There's been a, a lot of injuries. A, a lot of the accidents, if you like, have uh, involved uh, children under the age of 18, 41% of them in recent years. Uh, and that's the message for people to heed or not, uh, as uh, they decide, uh, but uh, I hope they've heard it loud and clear this morning and thank you indeed for joining us this morning as well. That's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Imelda Munster, who's a TD for Louth.
3: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
2: on LMFM. Now, as you know, Sinn Féin has lost two of its TDs uh, because of uh, the abortion legislation, Padderto being local TD in Mead West and Carol Nolan who's uh, TD in Offaly. And Carol Nolan uh, moved one of the amendments uh, which have led to concerns uh, that this abortion uh, legislation may be delayed and not introduced in time for the new year. One of the amendments that she introduced uh, as indeed uh, many TDs introduced uh, amendments, but one of the uh, amendments that was introduced by Carol Nolan was that uh, the public funds uh, that will fund abortions uh, would not uh, be made uh, available and that uh, people would have to pay for them themselves or be means tested as the case may be. This argument, it was suggested by Sinn Féin, was made on behalf of a businessman and there were emotive scenes in the doll last night. I, I just
4: find it so sad and frustrating that deputies came into this chamber, one deputy in particular, and made very wild accusations and damaging my reputation by saying that this was coming from a businessman. I can assure everybody here in this House it absolutely did not. I have conscientious objection, as does my colleague beside me. We were forced out of that party that you represent, and how dare you come in and try and destroy me and my character.
2: Now, Independent uh, TD, Carol Nolan sitting beside Independent TD, Padre Tobin, making that contribution in the Dáil last night. Uh, Cora Sherlock, a spokesperson for the pro-life campaign is on the line, and uh, as I said earlier on, Cora, there's a, a lot of concern that this legislation will be delayed because of the many amendments that are, are being proposed. Is that what you want?
8: Good morning, Michael. I think it's very clear that this abortion legislation, what you can see from from that clip you've just played and from other um, discussions that have taken place, this really is something that is tearing the country apart. And there's a very good reason for that. That's because abortion involves ending a baby's life. That's why Carol uh, Nolan was so upset last night because she has a conscientious objection, like so many other people in this country, about the fact that we are um, being being presented with legislation that will end babies' lives. But and what
2: difference does it make how it's funded if it's paid for out of the public purse or if people pay for it themselves? What difference does that make to the argument you're making?
8: Well there are a third of the people who went out and voted on the 25th of May set over 700 a thousand people in this country went out and voted against what the minister for health Simon Harris is proposing a bill uh, and a law that will end the life of children um in this country and i think that it's very unfair to say the least that their money their hard earned money um would go not towards uh, so many of the things that we're hearing about in this country where families um you know just mm. the other day we heard about families who are lining up in dublin um for nappies you know that's what we're hearing about but that's democracy isn't it it's going towards Mm. ending children's lives you know that's that's uh, that's, that's,
2: that's that's democracy i mean there's many people in this country who don't have children who think that their taxes shouldn't go to fund education
8: but do they think that their fund that their money should go towards ending the lives of children that's what's so upsetting i mean you know i think that Sometimes in all of the discussions on abortion and in the way that the Minister has presented it, um, he doesn't like to talk about what's actually involved here and the fact that none of the amendments that have been put forward have been accepted. He
2: doesn't seem to mind talking about it at all. He he spent, how long is it now, how many years now talking about it uh, and has been very vocal on it uh, in public... Uh, in media appearances, uh, in dull uh, contributions, in in, uh, questions that he took uh, from Oireachtas committees uh, and so on. So I I don't think it's fair to say that the minister doesn't like talking about it. Uh, I think a lot of people are probably sick of listening to him talking about it.
8: No, I think that, you know, one of the very pertinent things about this particular amendment is the fact that the tax funding of abortion wasn't actually in the bill when the people voted on it on the 25th of May, and um, polling since then has suggested that a majority of people do not support their taxes going towards the ending of children's lives um, in this bill, and it, that is, uh, you know, one of the things that I think people are upset about. Why didn't Simon Harris? put this forward before the people voted on it. But Let's he remember did. that Before the people but voted, he, he said that there would be lots of time to discuss it. But he, he
2: did. But I mean, we were speaking about it and the cost of it before the vote took place.
8: Mm-hmm. But I have the heads of the bill in front of me and there's nothing in that that says that my tax money or yours, Michael, will go towards ending children's lives. And I think.
2: Are, are you surprised that it's to be available through the Public Health Service?
8: No, but what I'm surprised about I mean, and what you knew I that. think many people are disappointed about is that there are, there is an element of deception in that where you're saying um, on the one hand where the Minister is saying this is what we voted on and then you look at the bill hmm. which was presented to the people uh, before the referendum even though it has to be said that we were told there would be lots of time to discuss that bill and the minister has shown that he has no interest in discussing this with doctors, mm. with the nurses. Hundreds of which have come out. Yeah, just but, 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 to oppose
2: but it. but before the referendum, I, I remember speaking to you, if, once at least, if not a number of times, about the cost of individual abortions, and with others about the cost of individual abortions. It seems as though the cost would be less than was uh, anticipated then. So, I, I mean, it was certainly an issue that was spoken about, and I don't think it came as any. Surprise to you, uh, and certainly not to me, that it's uh, proposed that it'll be funded through the public health service.
8: But you see, this is not healthcare, Michael, and I think that's one of the things that, again, we're being—you um, know—the the minister is trying to present this as healthcare let's remind ourselves again, this bill is all about killing a baby. That's what an abortion does. And I think really for the first time, people are starting to feel, and I have to say many yes voters, many people who voted yes on the 25th of May have said to me even that they are quite shocked at the barbarity of what is being involved. Let's remember that this is not the only amendment that has been turned down. The minister has also refused to include amendments that would allow pain relief for babies and late-term abortions that would allow medical care to be given to babies who do survive the abortion procedure, as happens all over the world. I mean, I don't understand what kind of uh, law he, he wants or what kind of law people want when they refuse to say that if a baby survives an abortion that baby should not be given medical care what would be so wrong in putting that into a law have we turned into a country that is so inhumane that we refuse pain relief to a baby undergoing a late-term abortion a baby whose nervous system has developed what is wrong with giving that baby pain relief when that baby's life is to be ended by this law Uh, which is more vicious by the day I have to say
2: what will happen
8: What do you mean what will happen? That baby will die in that abortion, but the baby will die without pain relief. Um, The minister has said that he will not allow an amendment which has been put forward by pro-life TDs that would allow that baby to have pain relief. I don't understand what would be wrong with that when even in other The the, the pregnancy would be
2: terminated uh, when you say baby, other would say fetus, uh, but that the pregnancy would be terminated uh, so that there would be no life. uh, So why would there be a need for pain relief?
8: You see, it's it's not that there would be no life. There is a life. The baby's heart is beating at three weeks old. We've already had so much evidence to show this. Um, The way that other countries deal with this, as we heard during the Oireachtas Committee, is that they give the baby an injection of poison into the baby's heart Two injections, in fact, one to hold the baby still and paralyze that baby, and then the baby gets an injection into his or her heart to stop it from beating. That's what happens. That is the uh, stage that we're at now, and that's the level of barbarity we're at. What Carol Nolan is saying, and I have to say I agree with her, is that um, people who oppose that barbarity should not have their uh, tax funding going towards that, Um, particularly, as I say, when the minister has adopted this viewpoint where he's ignoring the hundreds of doctors who've said they don't want to be part of that life-ending procedure, and the nurses now, because nurses are coming out Mm. against this. Like I say...
2: Well, the Minister uh, has said there will be conscientious objection.
8: Well, no, the Minister has said that doctors won't have to perform the procedure Mm. themselves, but this is not real conscientious objection. This is just pretend conscientious objection. No, that's
2: conscientious prevention, is it not, what you're suggesting?
8: No, because... What the minister is trying to do again is pull the wool over people's eyes. What he's saying is that he won't require and won't force doctors to end the baby's life themselves, mm. but what he will require is that they make it available and, and push it on, refer the woman to somebody else who they know will end mm. that baby's because, life. So, because,
2: because whether you agree or don't agree that it is part of the Irish health care system, uh, that's exactly what it is. It's part of our health services, and it's a, a service that will be available to people uh, through the healthcare system in this country, so they have to be given access to it.
8: No, what we're having at the moment is a fundamental change to our health care system, and I think the Minister isn't acknowledging that he's not prepared to acknowledge it because up to this point and up to this law we've always had a system in Ireland where doctors and nurses recognise and acknowledge the fact that they have two patients when they're dealing with a pregnant woman hmm. mother and baby and they do their best to look after both what he's now asking them to do is ignore the fact that there is two patients there and in fact kill one of
2: those OK, patients. well, well in in if, if, so. if that's the way you want to put it that, that is what he's doing but uh, legally uh, it is is fine there's nothing wrong with what the woman is doing and you cannot give a doctor uh, the opportunity to suggest that what she is doing is wrong when there's nothing wrong with what she's doing when it's perfectly legal
8: well, I think there is something wrong with killing a baby when All well, of I know the evidence, you
2: I know you but, do but but, but
8: let, let me finish Michael when all of the evidence around the world would suggest that that action itself but, will But you finished I'm sorry have. I'm
2: sorry Corey. you finished on the 29th of May you lost the argument
8: Absolutely, I accept that. But my point, is, if I can just finish, is all of the evidence around the world would suggest that an abortion can have a very negative effect on a woman's health herself. And I think doctors and nurses in this country who want to look after both of their patients, mother and baby, should be given the option to say, from my clinical judgment, I've read the studies around the world, and I'm aware of the fact that this is something, mm. this abortion is something which may rebound very badly On the woman, and I should not be forced by the doctor, who in fairness, or by the minister rather, who in fairness is not a doctor, Mm. um, but he should not be allowed.
2: Yeah, well, these these are big girls uh, who can make up their own mind, and they don't want to be bullied by doctors or anybody else.
8: Well, you see, I think then you're questioning the whole fact that why would we go to a doctor if we're not going to accept what they say? But more to the point, why should that doctor be forced? to end a baby's life to kill a baby against their own clinical judgment but they're not will will you see that there's are, a service
2: there's a service that is available or will be available when this legislation is enacted to women if they wish to terminate a pregnancy and those women should not be blocked by individuals whether they're doctors or anybody else
8: There are are hundreds and hundreds of doctors and nurses all over this country who are saying we were not consulted by the minister, we're not happy about this, Mm. and I think it is grossly unfair that they should be forced to take part in that. When there are doctors who are happy to to do the the so-called service of ending a baby's life, what I would encourage people though, and and it's true Michael, some Mm. people will be happy with this. But many, many people are not. A third of the people who went out and voted are not. And I would encourage them to go to the Pro-Life Campaign website, prolifecampaign.ie, and get involved. Let their uh, local representatives mm -hmm. know this week while the um, bill is going
2: through... But surely surely it's like going into a news agency and asking to buy a a ticket for the lottery and the person behind the counter says, no, we don't sell them because uh, we don't agree with gambling. Uh, But there is a news agency up the road that sells them.
8: Well, you see, no baby is going to lose his or her life um, in that situation, and no woman is... No, but there's a moral objection. Well, it's, it's not really a moral objection to the same level, and I think this is the point, Michael, that we've never had abortion in this country in this way before. So I think the Minister is being quite glib and facetious about it at times, and I think, you know, you can hear from the emotion in Carol Nolan's voice last night, this is something which holds deep-seated feeling for people and I I think that there should be more seriousness given to it than is at the moment because there is just this feeling where the minister is ignoring the doctors, he's ignoring the nurses, he's only listening to people who agree with them and you cannot introduce um, legislation on that basis. Yes, we accept that the referendum was lost but what happened on the 25th of May was a decision to remove the Eighth Mm. Amendment. It was not a decision to introduce such a barbaric um, act as this and unfortunately I don't think that that bodes well for the future of this country okay. in the manner that the minister is trying to push it through.
2: Okay uh, and when do you believe uh, abortion will be available in this country?
8: Well I mean the minister is trying to fast track it by Christmas or by the new year I think it would far uh, be hoping better to slow down and to listen to the people who are going to have to be involved in this procedure themselves. I mean I think the nurses Uh, The Nurses for Life group yesterday made a very good point where they said that there has been little or no consultation about what nurses uh, will be entitled to say yes or no to in terms of procedures that end the life of the baby Um, because nurses, as you know, do so much of the work on a hospital ward and the Minister has shown no interest in listening or talking to them.
2: Okay, but regardless of that, do you believe abortion will be available in January?
8: Well, it certainly looks that way. Um, And, you know, what I would say that I I just hope that the minister shows as much interest in providing uh, support to families and alternatives to abortion um, as he has in, in this act, which will ultimately result very tragically in ending the lives of many babies and harming women, as unfortunately it has done throughout the world.
2: All right, Cora, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us. As always, Cora Sherlock, spokesperson for the Pro-Life Campaign.
3: Michael Reed
2: on LMFM. Have a laugh for loneliness. It sounds like a, an odd thing to say, but it's actually the theme for the Alone Christmas campaign. Alone is the charity which supports older people to age at home. And let's hear more about this. Grania Lochran, communications officer with Alone is on the line. Good morning, Grania. Uh, maybe really you could well. tell us what you mean when you say have a, a laugh for loneliness.
9: Yeah so yesterday we were delighted to launch our Christmas campaign with Catherine Lynch around having a law for loneliness. So the campaign is encouraging uh, families and friends and neighbours to get together this winter and to hold maybe a bake sale or a coffee morning or another social event that you can have a laugh at to uh, raise funds for a loan and help us to combat loneliness uh, and it'll combat loneliness in their community at the same time. So that's the hope with this campaign.
2: You're not suggesting not to come that together. you're not suggesting that uh, you'd involve older people in this. I mean, they wouldn't want to have a laugh, would they?
9: Oh, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Yeah, you would, uh, yeah. We had a great morning yesterday at our at our launch. With uh, we had Margaret with us, who has been befriended by Alone Now for four years, and uh, herself and Catherine had a great laugh. So I, the idea is really to reach out. Um, to older people in your community too and to make sure that everybody will have a smile on their face coming up to Christmas.
2: All right, and uh, I suppose uh, that's uh, the point uh, that it's reaching out, and we often hear, I think every Christmas people are asked to reach out to older people, knock in, make sure they're okay and all of that, but to do something that uh, you'll enjoy and that they'll enjoy.
8: That's
9: exactly it. And it can be as simple as, you know, having a a wee bake sale in a local community centre having a coffee morning and maybe inviting some of the older people uh, who are nearby uh, who might like an excuse to get out of the house to have a chat and to get involved, uh, so it's really it's it's kind it's kind of a two tier thing that'll both uh, get everybody in the community coming together for this, but also to raise funds so that we can help other people.
2: Uh, and what will you do with the money raised if people uh, do take up on this?
9: So the money raised will go directly to our frontline services. It'll go towards things like training our befriending volunteers uh, who uh, pay visits to older people once a week. It'll go to training uh, our telephone befriending volunteers. And uh, we have plenty of people uh, up in live who are receiving a telephone befriending call uh, once or twice a week to check in on them. And it'll it'll really just go towards helping us uh to combat loneliness uh throughout the winter and further ahead
2: and i I think uh, alone is suggesting there's a hundred thousand older people who are lonely in this country, uh, and that contact obviously very, very important to them
9: It's vital i mean there are the thing about loneliness is that it can impact your physical and your mental health. Um, older people who are lonely are more likely um, to suffer from depression and cognitive decline. It, it, it's associated with an increased risk of dementia and a whole host of other issues that I think a lot of people wouldn't really expect it to be associated with. And there, there's... People, older people, especially during the winter, mm. might find it a bit harder to get out and about uh, to have that kind of social contact that might be much easier for them during the summer. So, really, throughout the winter, the important thing is for uh, anyone who's able to reach out.
2: And I, I suppose as well, Gwania. Yeah, a lot of us are, are well-intentioned, and the idea of knocking into somebody and checking in on them every now and then is all well and good. But you know, one thing comes up, or another thing comes um, up, comes up, uh, uh, and we find we don't have the time to do that because we're all very busy uh, in our lives. uh, But uh, when you don't have those things to do, isn't it amazing how long a day can be and how long you can go without actually hearing from somebody?
9: Exactly. I mean, uh, I was talking to a lady um, called Betty actually last week and uh, she was telling me about after her husband passed away and the loneliness she felt after that she said it was like the walls were coming in on you and it was sort of like a panic because you had no one to talk to from one day to the next and in in Betty's case um You know, we have a volunteer going out to her now and that actually gave her the confidence to uh, get back out and about in her her own community. Mm. She's actually giving knitting lessons now uh, down at the local health centre. So it's it's sometimes just taking that one small step that really gives someone the confidence to get back out and about.
2: Well well done to Betty, no doubt about it. Uh, But that... One small step can be a a huge step, uh, I gather, for uh, the people involved. It's very hard for them uh, to admit to themselves, let alone to you or anybody else, that they're feeling lonely uh, and that their only friend in the world, perhaps, is their television or their radio.
9: Yeah, there is still a stigma associated with loneliness. And I know... um, for instance, the campaign to end loneliness in the UK has said that loneliness now uh, has a higher stigma attached to it than you know, mental health or depression and things like that. And I think it's because most of us don't uh, want to admit like in, I suppose in the world today of social media and, you know, Facebook friends and likes, that maybe we don't have uh, enough social connection. We're all connected all the time, but it's, I suppose it's admitting that maybe that's not the right connection for you or that you need something more. Uh, but I suppose the thing about it is that all of us, feel lonely at one time or another in our lives I think we can all kind of relate to it even if we don't want to always admit it mm. and I suppose it's sort of realising that it's first realising that you are lonely because that might take a bit of time to kind of come to terms with the two and then realising that there's no shame in reaching out for a bit of help
2: mm. well, No no shame but what's the point? I don't even know these people I'm sure you hear that a lot as well
9: uh, yeah um so our our volunteers uh will visit once a w- visit an older person once a week and they start off you know they're they're two total strangers they might know each other at all, but it's actually we've seen it form some fantastic friendships um that are you know it's it's much more than say you know a volunteer visit um you know we've heard of uh matched pairs going on sleepovers, going to the cinema, you know, really kind of becoming uh, really close friends outside of, you know, any kind of volunteer mm. role. So, And it, the other thing is it can really help a volunteer as well. Mm. Uh, so, say, a younger person, whether they're lonely or not, volunteering has great benefits uh, for your own confidence and your own well-being too. So it's not just that you're doing something good for someone else. You're actually doing something good for
2: yourself. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks uh, for telling us about it as well this morning. Grania Lockham, Communications Officer with Alone, who brings our program to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
1: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now Michael at LMFM.ie